Hello, and welcome to Radio Free Acton, the podcast of the Acton Institute, dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts. And on today's episode, we'll first be diving into a question that seems to be cropping up more and more these days. Was Jesus a socialist? Larry Reed, the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, tackles this subject with Acton's research associate, Dan Huger, going over biblical passages that might lead people to wonder whether Jesus would have supported the creation of wealth. On our second segment, host Bruce Walker speaks with poet James Matthew Wilson about his new volume of poetry and why poetry is important today. If you're interested in any books, articles, or more mentioned in the episode, you can find them all linked in our show notes, published every Wednesday at blog.actin.org. Good day to you, uh, listeners of Radio Free Acton. This is Dan Huger. I am the uh, librarian and research associate here at the Acton Institute. And today I am uh, with Larry Reed. Larry Reed has uh, been the president of FEE since 2008, and he has been writing and speaking for FEE since the late 1970s. Uh, Prior to becoming the Foundation for Economic Education's president, he served for 20 years as president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Midland, Michigan. He holds two honorary doctorates, one from Central Michigan University and one from Northwood University. And today we'll be discussing the question, was Jesus a socialist? Larry, welcome to Radio Free Acton. Thank you very much, Dan. Pleasure to be with you. I'd like to begin with where this notion that Jesus was a socialist comes from and sort of where you first encountered it and where our listeners might encounter this today. Well, I've heard it many, many times over the years. I think uh, the first time I heard it was way back in uh, in high school. Uh, it, uh, I will allow that it almost always comes from people with very good intentions, but I would also hasten to add that I think uh, uh, they're sadly mistaken uh, because Jesus was not uh, an advocate of anything that looks like socialism uh, as we know it in the modern world today. Uh, so uh, where it exactly comes from, I'm not certain, but I think there are a lot of people who are uh, uh, taken in by the notion that, uh, that Jesus is uh, a so- or was a socialist, but he, he was not. And one can, one can see where that inclination might come from when we see the times that Jesus appears to be very critical of wealth, as in the case of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and in his overturning of the tables of the money changers in Matthew 21. Um, What do you think is the best reading of those sorts of passages? Well, Jesus was critical of uh, anyone allowing wealth to rule their lives, that's for sure. Uh, He was against uh, a lot of things uh, uh, ruling someone's life. He he was not against wealth per se. If you, uh, for instance, look at the example you uh, referenced of the uh, driving of the money changers out of the temple— uh, that was an occasion where a very inappropriate activity at a place where it should never have happened was taking place. This was God's house. And uh, you never find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus is chasing money changers uh, from a bank or from a marketplace. Uh, this is, uh, as I say in the uh, essay I've written on this very subject, that uh, showing up at God's house uh, to make some sales or even charge admission is very much like showing up at a funeral with a kazoo and, and starting to play, uh, you know, happy days are here again. I mean, it's just not an appropriate place. So he wasn't against wealth per se. He was against uh, 
allowing it to run your life. He was against you worshiping it, and he, he was against the flaunting of it in places where it was uh, grossly inappropriate. Yeah, no, I could see that. Um, and at other times, he appears indifferent to these questions of wealth. Um, there's a case of uh, the brother who approaches him about the distribution of an inheritance between him and his brother in Luke 12. And then um, there's the uh, anointing of Mary Magdalene of Jesus uh, in John 12, where the perfume is used and Judas Iscariot uh, criticizes her that the that this money that was used to procure this perfume could have gone to the poor. And Jesus sort of rebukes Judas there. So there's there's other cases where he seems um, indifferent to these questions. Well, in the case of Luke 12, uh, uh, even more specifically 12, 13 through 15, when the man comes up to him and says, Master, speak to my brother that he divideth the inheritance with me, uh, Jesus' reply was, uh, I would say, not really one of indifference. Uh, he sort of took the offensive. He said, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? Uh, in my mind, that's, uh, that's not indifference. That's actually saying to the person, get your mind off of uh, the uh, redistribution of wealth and focus instead on far more lofty, more important things. Uh, so, uh, you know, he could have said at that moment something like, uh, well, I'll look into it, or maybe you didn't get a fair shake. But instead, he uh, used it as an opportunity to rebuke the man for his envy. And that is often uh, the source of... Tremendous mischief in society. Yeah, no. So that that the wealth is never is never a primary question, and this gets back to those negative aspects too. When that focus draws your attention from honoring God, honoring neighbor, that 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 can be um, the same a, a different sort of trap um, revolving around the same preoccupation. There's no question that, uh, that wealth, like so many other things, uh, carries with it uh, immense temptations. Mm -hmm. uh, a person of good, solid character and Christian principle will be on guard against those temptations and never allow uh, wealth or material things to dominate his life. Uh, that's what uh, Jesus was referring to, not simply uh, an animosity towards wealth per se. Yeah. And there are some instances where Jesus displays a very positive attitude towards wealth, as in the parable of the talents, where he praises people for investing, rewarding their talents, uh, in, and uh, getting a, a return on those uh, talents. And then there's also um, the case of the workers in the vineyard, where he criticizes the workers who are critical of, of contracts and the same reward for, for different amounts of work. That's right. Uh, those two parables are important for yet another reason, and that is that uh, any time you take a passage uh, or, or even a single statement uh, from Jesus, and this really is true of anybody, uh, if you, b before you run to uh, sweeping conclusions, you've got to consider the context. You've got to consider uh, the particular statement in the context of all the other things that the person said and did in his life. And uh, that's why if you say, well, on this occasion, Jesus seemed to be critical uh, of wealth, it, it doesn't follow that therefore he's against wealth when you consider these other important uh, uh, parables. He went out of his way on those two occasions 
to uh, defend, in effect, property rights and the accumulation of wealth. So you can't ignore those things and just uh, misread a a select few uh, other statements. You have to look at them in the context of all that he said and uh, so that they're compatible. Yeah, and that's an excellent hermeneutic for looking at, at all of Scripture on all sorts of various questions is to take, is to take that, whole cons- uh, that whole context into account. One of the places where I thought when I first started thinking about this question of where this idea of Jesus being a socialist could have come from isn't, in, in fact, from the teachings of Jesus himself, but the life of the early church in Acts, where there's a degree of a sort of communal life. Um, what are your thoughts thoughts on that, on that early life of the church? Well, I think, again, context uh, is critically important. Also, the, uh, uh, an understanding of the time in which this happened. Uh, it's true that people in the early church, the earliest of the early church, Uh, were called upon to sell their possessions and join in the movement to spread the word of Christ. Uh, There's nothing in any of that or any place in the book of Acts or elsewhere that suggests that this is some general prescription for all of society in the rest of the world in that day or ours. This was a special occasion, the beginning of uh, Christ's church, when uh, they were up against the natural skepticism of a pagan people, and uh, they took uh, special measures to uh, put themselves on the right kind of path, to gird their loins for the battles ahead. And uh, that's a very special, different occasion, and it doesn't follow from anything else in the Bible that uh, all of us 2,000 years later are supposed to equalize our wealth or give it away or give it all away or somehow be equal with others in material possession. This was a special time and place. Yeah, because what is clear that is sort of sort of more permanent is that we have obligations towards each other. Um, this would be illustrated like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that we have obligations to our neighbor. Why should we think of those obligations as, 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 as more personal than a political obligation? When they're considered personal, uh, Dan, uh, then we have a glimpse into the, uh, the individual's heart. For someone to simply say, well, here's someone who's needy. Uh, I don't want to have anything to do with him, but uh, uh, let's have some politician somewhere or somebody else take care of him. That reveals that in your heart, Uh, is something that doesn't quite match what you're saying. Uh, That's why, uh, in the long run, I think all of us should should want a society in which people do the right thing because they want to, because it comes from their heart, because it's sincere, uh, not because they have to do it. And that's something that Jesus was concerned about from start to finish, what's in the heart, even the ultimate matter that all of us must decide whether or not to accept him as our Savior is not something that he would uh, ever suggest should be done at gunpoint uh, or in any way coerced. Even that ultimate decision is left to each of us to make that decision ourselves because that's what reveals what's really in your heart and what you really sincerely mean. And it also points to a larger issue that, that issues like poverty aren't simply problems to solve, but are, are, are opportunities for all of us for service right. and solidarity with each other. No, that's a wonderful way to think about it. Another way to put it is just ask yourself, which do you think uh, Jesus uh, would prefer that you do? Pitch in and help another person in need or give of your own substance to, say, the Red Cross or the Salvation Army? Or, on the other hand, 
pass it off to uh, the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development or the uh, Health and Human Services Department. Uh, the first is a testament to what's in your heart. The second is uh, perhaps a testament of what you really have in mind, which is something else than, uh, than helping a, a person in need. What, what do you make of, um, you know, Paul makes the argument in Romans 13 that we should respect government authority and institutions. And in our day of age, in day and age, there's a lot of socialistic policies, a lot of particularly Western governments have extensive networks of redistribution. What would you say to someone who defends this notion of, you know, this is what the civil authority has decided and I should just go along with it because I am, I'm obligated to respect that authority. Well, I think Paul, uh, of course, who was writing at a time of, uh, of persecution, of uh, dominance by a foreign authority, the Romans, uh, I mean, he had to be very sensitive to, you know, the kinds of conditions and statements that could, uh, or positions that could get the early church quickly snuffed out by the Roman authorities. But I think he was also basically saying that the same thing our founders here in America said in the Declaration of Independence, namely that you don't uh, overturn established authority lightly, that doing so can open the door to all kinds of other mischief, perhaps uh, 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 terrible things to, to people. But they, uh, I don't think Paul was saying that whatever any government says to anybody at any time must be obeyed. If that were the case then can you imagine uh, uh, there would never have been a Jesus Christ because everybody would have had to say, well, if, uh, uh, if Pharaoh says we have to kill all the uh, firstborns, I guess we just have to do it. I, I really think that you have to take these things in context, and when you take them to their logical extreme, you realize the, the, the real meaning was a little different from what you might see at first blush. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, you know, the role of the Magi there when they report back to Herod or when they're they're encouraged to report back to Herod when they when they found the Christ child um and didn't. So that would be an, an example of that sort of that sort of civil resistance. You know, you have mentioned already your wonderful little monograph, um, Render Under Caesar Under Caesar was Jesus a socialist, um, which is an excellent resource I would commend to our listeners. Are there any re other resources that you found very helpful um, for yourself in thinking through these things? Well, let me put in a shameless plug for the Acton website, because uh, that's where I often encourage people to go to when I get this very question. I say the very first place ought to be the Acton Institute's website. Uh, another good place is uh, a recently formed group called Libertarian Christians. Uh, com. Doug Bondo, uh, some years ago, I hope it's still in print, wrote a wonderful book called Beyond Good Intentions, and it basically uh, makes the case that, uh, that markets, that free interchange of responsible adults in a uh, democratic society is all uh, not only perfectly compatible with Christianity, but is perhaps even commanded by it, uh, leaving people alone unless they do harm to you. Uh, the Golden Rule. Mm -hmm. uh, these things uh, in Bondo's book and in uh, the works also of Oz Guinness and others, uh, I think, uh, are systematically and faithfully upheld. So those would be the sources that come uh, most readily to mind. Well, those are some excellent recommendations. Thank you so much for being with us today, and, and thank you um, um, for all the work you do with Fee. 
and with all the work that you've done over the years um, in all sorts of avenues of life, bringing economic literacy to people and uh, engaging and compelling arguments on uh, how we should live our life together. Hey, thank you very much, Dan. I look forward to uh, speaking for the Acton Institute here in Atlanta later this month. On June 16, 1992, London's Daily Telegraph reported this astonishingly bold remark by former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Sadly, this line of thinking has become common today. Join us at Fado's Irish Pub in Atlanta, Georgia on October 25 to hear Lawrence Reed, president of the Foundation of Economic Education, dispel the myth that Jesus was a socialist. You can register at actin.org slash events. Hello, this is Bruce Edward Walker, and today I'm talking with James Matthew Wilson, who has a new book of poems just released called The Hanging God. Wilson is the Associate Professor of Religion and Literature in the Department of Humanities and Augustinian Traditions at Villanova University. He's a poet obviously, and critic of contemporary poetry. His work appears regularly in such magazines and journals as First Things, The Hudson Review, Modern Age, and The New Criterion, Dappled Things, and The Weekly Standard. And he is here to discuss the relevance of poetry, not just his own, but uh, why uh, individuals who are interested in redeeming the culture would invest their time and energy in reading poetry. And particularly, there's one thing that James is uh, quite good at, and that is revealing the moral imagination through poetry. So, hello, James. How are you today? I'm, I'm great, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Well, great. And congratulations on the, the new publication. I had an opportunity to read portions of it over the weekend, and um, quite impressive. So, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having a look at it. Okay, well, let's look a little bit at uh, your, your poetry in particular. You uh, use strict forms. How do you think using the, the, the strict form of, of poetry writing reflects or underscores the thematic content of, of your poetry? Well, in, in several ways. The way that's kind of closest to the bone for me is just um, things need to be done well. <laughs> when they're done well, they're done according to a craft with, uh, with standards of its own. One of the great losses in the 20th century is that modern poetry became just this kind of strange um, area beyond all the fences where fiddling around with words just went to die. And so contemporary poetry became anything for which there was just no other name because it wasn't a story. It wasn't something anybody could understand or enjoy. But in fact, poetry in every civilization is not just an important art form. It's the central art form. And it's the central art form precisely because it's the art form where the language of everyday people is not transformed, but refined into a kind of gem-like perfection. So if we neglect all the equipment, all the craftsmen's practices of the poetic tradition, we're really rejecting what made poetry play the central role that it has in our civilization and every civilization. Right. In that, and I think that you're reflecting a lot of what uh, T.S. Eliot was writing in uh, Tradition and the Individual Talent. Uh, I think that's true. I mean, when you write in form, when you write in meter, um, you're putting yourself into communion with everyone who's written before you and everyone who will write after you. And you're submitting yourself to that tradition, not in a slavish manner, but in a faithful manner. 
whereas so much of poetry in the 20th century, Eliot was the great critic of this, um, became laughable because it, it, you could only understand it as doing something if you understood it as simply expressing some person's nominally individual voice or emotions. Uh, we get enough of that uh, on daytime television. <laughs> well, it reminds me to go back to uh, the 1910s when uh, Ezra Pound created Imagism and was a staunch proponent of that. He was editing anthologies of it and then kind of turned the reins over to Amy Lowell, who essentially turned it into a free verse form. And uh, Pound ended up disparagingly referring to it as Amygism ever afterwards. Be, because because no no rules were being followed, uh, the uh, the rudiments of, of poetry writing were not taught anymore. They they kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah, the um the episodes uh, in the modernist arts had something quite defensible about them at their root, but they often were uh, defensible instincts or defensible motives that uh, were based on poor knowledge of the history of the art forms they were trying to improve. And poetry is a great example of that. Great poet Timothy Steele wrote a book called Missing Measures years ago that describes how Pound and other modernist poets, they felt obliged to abandon metered rhyme because they wanted to create a poetry that was capable of giving representation to contemporary life. In that motive, they were, they were sound. Much of the popular poetry of their day had retreated into highly stylized, uh, mannered or artificial representations of uh, nature poetry. It was sort of um, reheated Wordsworth, and it lacked any of Wordsworth's intelligence or insight. Or moral imagination, for that matter. Yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, because he's really actually one of the great Burkean poets of the English language is, is Wordsworth, Wordsworth and Kohler's together. Their lack of historical understanding has demonstrated that they believed that they had to abandon meter and rhyme in order to give representation to the contemporary world. Whereas, in fact, what's wonderful about rhyme and meter is that they give a uh, a poem, clear integrity, clear formal coherence, but they impose nothing on the content. There aren't particular subjects that are better said in rhyme and meter and others that are not. Rather, you can represent anything in those forms, and the forms make possible a kind of refinement and, uh, and permanence and, uh, and specificity or sensitivity uh, of representation that otherwise would be impossible. Well, I, I, I like that uh, you, you brought up permanence in your, your last uh, statement in that you actually have a volume of poetry called Permanent Things. and uh, On Permanent Things, yeah. Yes, On Permanent Things. And it's, uh, well, let's give it a little bit of background to the phrase Permanent Things. And maybe you could give us a sample of a poem that reflects or is actually included in, in that volume. Yeah, that'll be easy to do. So... Uh, readers of T.S. Eliot will have noticed a little footnote at the end of his book, um, The Idea of a Christian Society. He says more or less that the modern age has a tendency to abandon the permanent things, those permanent truths that everyone should know and needs to know if, uh, if they're to live decent lives individually and if, um, and if a polity is to have a decent order to itself. Mo the modern age has become concerned exclusively with the ephemeral at the expense of what's the permanent intelligence and traditions of our civilization. And uh, it's really kind of a throwaway phrase in Eliot's prose. But then again, all of Eliot's best phrases in his prose were throwaway phrases. They always sort of come up here in his essays as if they were an afterthought. But Russell Kirk came across it and latched onto it. He really loved that book. And so it became 
a refrain in Kirk's prose in the last several decades of his life to speak of the permanent things. Years ago, I wrote a poem about the isolation that people who want to live well in our age, which is more concerned with living cheaply or living freely than it is with living truly, the, the isolation that, that so many of us feel in our time. And what, what would be the source of that isolation? Well, we tend to discover the possibilities of human life often in the quiet of reading a book uh, or in quiet reflection rather than out in the streets with our fellow citizens. And so the quest for to sort of transcend the ephemeral, to enter into what's permanent, is often a very silent and isolated uh, quest. I wrote a poem about this, and I thought, what is this poem? What, what should I give <laughs> or as the title for this poem? I, I thought, I can't think of a good one now, so I'll just write some permanent things, and I'll come back and give it a better title later. But the more I reflected on the title, the more wonderful it came to appear to me as summarizing everything I was trying to do in my poetry. And so uh, in 2014, when I published my third book of poems, I thought the only title for this book must be Some Permanent Things. So here I'll read you the poem. You'll notice in the last, uh, er, excuse me, the first stanza, there's a, uh, a nice reference to one of Lord Acton's most uh, celebrated aphorisms. Some permanent things. The retail banker in his cubicle will speak of his great aunt or cherished clothes he plucked from her estate sale with some dull sophorifics so quaint they can't be posed. But jealous of the little powers his branch manager gives like souvenir coffee cups, he drops the sweet talk, as Acton says, corrupt, to charge this late fee or repossess that ranch. Inclined to think the salesman's smile cheek paint, the earnest confidence less pearl than swine, and every pinned lapel a scoundrel's faint, we bathe our sentiments in turpentine, suspect adultery in our neighbor's nest, leave love and faith in nursing homes to rot where they feed on those innards we forgot, and mock our innocence for its hollow chest. But discontented, sipping irony, the occasional citizen will hear a drum sounding with more than antique vibrancy. He wanders through the alleys till he comes upon an old flag in the collective attic, too plain for casual appreciation, enduring every age's violation, its crest grown true, more bloody, and more vatic. Nice. I, I, I think it's uh, pretty pertinent to where we are today in that uh, we're, we're trying to establish what Edmund Burke called little platoons that are going out and trying to, in their own special way, redeem the culture from, uh, from what uh, passes for entertainment today because most of it is rather nihilistic and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, anti-Christian. I mean, not just devoid of Christianity or Christian thought, but anti-Christian. So I, I, I think that uh, it's, it's important that uh, we have poets who, out there who are doing what you do and that they're trying to um, resurrect the dead art, as, uh, as Pound said. I think it's essential that the contemporary poet in every poem simultaneously register the passing and usually sordid realities of our age, but only sufficiently so that we can see honestly what's better than it. Most contemporary poetry makes a, uh, an idol of uh, the worst of human instincts and the most degraded aspects of human life, all of which needs to not only be addressed, but it has to be taken seriously. But no serious person thinks he's reducible to his sins. 
and no serious civilization could possibly describe itself purely in terms of its own degradations. But on the other hand, uh, I edit, uh, I'm the editor for, uh, the poetry editor for Modern Age magazine, as I say to the various authors who, who write in sending their work to me, the alternative to degradation is not simply uh, ignoring it in a sort of saccharine and uh, oblivious manner. It's rather we have to find a way to uh, restore to veneration and also to give representation to what's permanent um, in the context of our own age. So it's a, it's a kind of a sophisticated trick that's, uh, that's required, but it's the only one that's going to give to the contemporary reader a, a sense of genuine insight rather than feeling as if he's escaped into uh, either fluffy sentiment or a mere kind of a rehearsal of our woes. Fantastic. And on that note, I, I'd like to wrap it up. Uh, James Matthew Wilson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much, Bruce. Take care. James Matthew Wilson is Associate Professor of Religion and Literature in the Department of Humanities and Augustinian Traditions at Villanova University. His latest volume of poetry is called The Hanging God. And for Radio Free Acton, I am your cultural host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, visit our website at acton.org. Let your friends and family know that they can now listen to Radio Free Acton on their favorite podcast app or directory, as well as Spotify and YouTube. And as always, if you like our podcast, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Nathan Moore.